It's Tuesday, February the 23rd, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns in this time of pandemic. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution, as well as a Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. I'll be your moderator today. And one of the things about being the moderator is I get to introduce the stars of the show, the good fellows, as we jokingly refer to them, beginning with John Cochran. John is an economist, and he is the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. Hello, John. Hi, everybody. Second good fellow joining us from his wilderness outpost, as per usual, is Neil Ferguson. Neil's a renowned historian and author, and he is the Hoover Institution's Milbank Family Senior Fellow. Hello, Neil. Hi, Bill. Good to be back with you. And finally, last but not least, our third good fellow, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. He is the Hoover Institution's Fawada Michelle Ajami Senior Fellow, and he's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Battlegrounds, A Fight to Defend the Free World. Hello, H.R. Hello, Bill, Neil, and, uh, and John. Good to be with everybody. So, gentlemen, last year we sojourned to the Middle East. We are now back on U.S. soil, and we are going to look this week at the interesting case that is the state of California. Joining us for that is our colleague, Lee Ohanian. Lee is a senior fellow here at the Hoover Institution and professor of economics and director of the Edinger Family Program and Macroeconomic Research at UCLA. Lee is also my partner in crime here at Hoover. He and I write for a channel that we call California On Your Mind. It's available at hoover.org. Lee writes weekly about economics and policy. I write about politics and policy. Check it out if you're interested in California. Lee, thanks for coming on, Goodfellows. Hey, Bill, thank, uh, thanks so much. Uh, gentlemen, it's great, uh, great to join you and hang with you for the next hour or so. Okay, Lee, so California is the topic today. By the time that most people are gonna see this video, Lee, you will have given a presentation to the Hoover Institution's Economic Policy Working Group, the title of which, The Exodus of Firms from California, Facts, Reasons, Solutions. I don't want to give away too much of the presentation. I don't know if you have a movie in mind or a 10-part Netflix series, but let's talk about California in this regard. When we talk about exodus of firms, Lee, let's talk about reasons and facts. So what, what is going on here? Why are firms leaving California? Yeah, uh, Bill, it's just, it's a really simple basic principle from, from standard, you know, first-year economics. Um, economics about, is about incentives and constraints. And businesses are interested in growing and being profitable. And what's involved with that is costs and taxes. And you know, more broadly, they're leaving because California is no longer competitive um, with other states. Oracle, Tesla, Hewlett Packard, Charles Schwab, a little bit outside of tech are all moving to Texas where costs are lower, taxes are lower. Just from a business standpoint, that's what makes that was that's what makes sense for them. Um, and this has been, you know, this has been building for decades now. And and sadly, California is a great and sad example of what happens when when governance goes astray. Um, so I'm sure we'll get into this over the next hour, but. Back during the go-go years, when California's population grew from 7 million to 25 million from roughly 1945 to 1975, our budget was one-fifth inflation-adjusted per person of what it is today, yet we made it work. There were huge investments. The quality of governance was great. Government was very efficient. Um, today, the budget is five times as high per person inflation-adjusted. And yet we have failures such as what happened at the employment department at the Oroville Dam. Um, we're not getting basic government functions done. And at the root, and the root cause of why people and businesses are leaving is just, just really an abject failure of California governance. 
Okay, I want G, I want uh, Lee and uh, I want Neil and uh, John and uh, HR to jump in here, but one more question here. Uh, given what happened in Texas last week, Lee, is that a blip on the radar or do you see an opportunity for California to uh, better keep businesses here in this state? Well, you know, when we grew from 7 million to 25 million in a 30 year period, uh, it was because people wanted to be here for the very obvious reasons of California's natural amenities. Um, so yes, the ship can be righted. Um, whether or not Texas makes changes or, or they don't make changes. This is where people would like to be. We just don't make it cost effective and very affordable and very easy for them or business to locate. But that can change with the right types of policy changes and the right types of reforms within our governance. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, Texas had a power outage because I don't know if you've ever been to Texas, it tends to be hot there and they didn't put the money into winterizing their electricity systems. I mean, electricity works fine in North Dakota because they know it snows there and they may choose to spend a little more money on winterizing. That doesn't, that's not about a, a, a wholesale failure of governance that Lee was saying. Lee, I want to I phrase this as a question because there's which aspect of it. In some sense, for the last 20 years, this has already been going on that certainly in the Bay Area, what happens is companies are here while they have to be here in the startup phase. The venture capital's here, the floating pool of talent is here. You get the company going here, but when you're not hiring a programmer who can fix our this today, but you're in operational mode, you're answering the phones, you're servicing customers, you're hiring employees who stay there for 10 or 20 years and do a job, they were already first moving over the hills as fast as humanly possible uh, into the valley, then moving into Nevada and, and then into other areas that tech companies already had big outposts in uh, Colorado, Texas, because they're then, they're now kind of regulated monopolies, <laughs> they're production, they're not uh, innovation. Uh, this also happened already, aerospace moved out long ago. <laughs> uh, it's, it's more of a production thing too. Um, but of the, of the various pathologies of California, you mentioned taxes, which are high. Uh, the regulatory burden is very high. Uh, part of that in how you do your business, part of that labor regulation is uh, very onerous. Part of that is if you want to expand, you know, good luck, good luck pulling a permit for anything in California if you want to, if you want to build something. Um, housing is a classic disaster, meaning if you actually have employees who earn less, in Palo Alto, I think you're qualified as low income if you earn $250,000 a year uh, for, for our affordable housing. Uh, but, um, you know, people have to drive enormous amounts because they won't uh, build houses. Uh, the schools, the public schools have uh, in most places become awful. Um, and the, uh, the uh, amenities part of it is now under COVID, especially there's natural amenities. It's still pretty out. Uh, but um, the cities, you know, that what we were seeing was this this thing really exploding in San Francisco because the young people loved being there and the bars and restaurants were there and so forth. But uh, that seems to be gone and possibly for good, sort of a zombie army of the homeless crime that's out of control. Nobody's prosecuting anything. And that means the businesses won't be there, the restaurants. So uh, of these pathologies, <laughs> uh, you mentioned taxes. The others seem more important. You know, as I look to places, there's places like uh, the Nordic countries, they have high taxes. They have a very light regulatory burden. They understand you don't uh, kill the golden goose and they trundle along. Now, maybe they're, I don't know, 20, 30% GDP less than the US, but they're not disaster zones. Um, so I'm, I'm curious your view of which of these other kinds of governance problems are, are more significant for companies moving out and, and whether we will still have the innovation part uh, working here or whether it's all gone. 
Yeah, yeah, uh, John. That's that's a long that's a long list of uh, you know the patient just an invitation serum, and it's like all their vitals. None of their vital signs are any good. <laughs> they got a fever. Their respiration is down. Um, their heart rate. Um, so yeah, I, I think you really hit the the nail on the head regarding regulation um, because regulation is the reason why the median price of a home in California, single family home is $720,000. And along coastal California, where the high paying jobs are, that's well in excess of a million dollars. So the idea that we're going to recruit people from the Midwest and bring them here and say, oh, by the way, here's a starter home for 1.2 million. Do you have a quarter million to put down so you can get a conforming loan? That's just kind of a pie in the sky fantasy that, that we have to fix if we're going to be able to keep people here. Um, you mentioned, uh, so California Environmental Quality Act, which was passed in 1970, signed into law by President Reagan. Uh, that was written at a time when I think economics, uh, uh, the ideas of cost benefit analysis and the extent to which incentives really should be front and center within regulatory matters. That was a time when that type of language didn't fill in bills. You see that in CEQA, uh, California Environmental Quality Act, uh, you know, we call that CEQA for short. That requires mitigation of any environmental damage um, at all costs, which means there are developments that just you know won't get built. Even let me if, just, but before we yeah, sound yeah. like heartless, heartless anti-environmentalists, which you pointed out in some of your writing, it's not really about the environment. It's just a tool that somebody who doesn't want it uh, built can use to stop it forever. Yeah, exactly. Uh, CEQA can be filed um, by anyone. A CEQA-related lawsuit can be filed by anyone. Um, the same lawsuit can be filed multiple times. And there was a, uh, and so this isn't really related to environmental damage. This is related to a pathway to block development or to slow development or to extract resources from a developer whether you're a labor union, whether you're a community advocate group that doesn't want building in their backyard, whether you want to have a brand new park built uh, in return for having a new, a new complex three blocks away. Um, Newhall Ranch is a great example. Newhall Ranch is just outside of Valencia, uh, which is about 35, 40 miles from Los Angeles, um, loosely speaking, a bedroom community. It was planned in 1994 to be 60,000 uh, person city, city slash town. Plans were submitted in 1994. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> permits were issued in 2019 because one CEQA related lawsuit after another was filed year after year, sometimes the same lawsuit. And the idea that it takes 25 years to get a development permit, it just really isn't in anyone's interest other than maybe, you know, uh, uh, th those who benefit from that congestion within the court system and so forth. Um, what was the final hangup over this lawsuit? It was filed by a, uh, an organization in Arizona. Uh, <laughs> no one with really local interest. <clears throat> it was filed by an environmental organization in Arizona who demanded that Valencia build 10,000 uh, electric vehicle charging ports uh, and also be carbon neutral. Um, so this was the final hangup. And 
if we look at the share of electrical vehicles within California right now, the idea that we need 10,000 charging ports in a city of 60,000 is simply ludicrous. So these are, this is what, this is, and everybody, uh, this is not a left-right issue. Uh, There's not a partisan issue whatsoever. Everyone agrees that CEQA has made housing uh, very expensive to build, very slow to build. And a big, you know, making California affordable again, I think this would be this would be the lowest hanging fruit that, that I can think of. I'd like to bring the historians in here. We, we have an interesting show this week. We have two economists versus two historians. So make of that what you will. Uh, so let's give Neil and HR some time to talk here. Uh, and Neil, this thought, California in terms of historical arc, if you will. I, I refer to that great source of California wealth, that great philosopher, Jed Clampett, whose show begins with the premise of what? California is a place you ought to be. So perhaps we should devote a few minutes to talking about California's role and if California is living up to its role. Well, I think like many people who grew up in Europe uh, in the 1960s and 1970s, I got my ideas about California from the movies and from the Beach Boys, and I really did leave it way too late to show up. And that just goes to illustrate the need to do due diligence on more or less everything in life. But as I was listening to The Economist talk, I was pondering, how did all this come about? I mean, it's still on paper, the what, fifth largest economy in the world if it were an independent state. Right. The, the stories of mass exodus to Texas are overdone. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, the exodus is actually mostly from San Francisco to neighborhoods like uh, Stanford, Palo Alto, and so forth. Uh, and I'm kind of asking myself, surely this is just a political story. I mean, Lee, you said a moment ago, it's not about left and right. Excuse me, but it definitely is about that because from the late 1950s, by my calculations, the Democratic Party has had majorities in the two houses of the California state legislature more or less uninterruptedly, and those majorities have got steadily larger. So California did not become a byword for demented regulation, uh, paralyzing bureaucracy, and demented virtue signaling. particularly with respect to public schools, just by accident. And it certainly wasn't some natural process that could be predicted from economic theory. This is a political problem. This is a one-party state. And the question that I've been burning to ask somebody who really gets the state is, well, what went wrong? What became of the Republican governors that used to at least try to inject some sanity into the state's governance? And why why did that happen in California and not in Massachusetts, where I used to live and where there's still a Republican governor and where the taxes are not anything like as high and the regulations not, not, in, uh, not remotely as, as burdensome? I was naive. I thought Massachusetts and California were essentially the same place. Blue America, better weather in California, what's not to like? But it turned out to me, to my amazement, that California actually is run not at all like Massachusetts. And that seems to me to be a political problem, though. No? You know, uh, Neil, when I referred to sort of not a left-right issue, my reference was to reforming the California Environmental Quality Act. So there's been emphasis both from Republicans and also from Jerry Brown about the need to make changes to CEQA. I agree with you entirely that a one-party state is a problem. I think I think political competition, no matter who is in office, is a healthy thing. It leads to better ideas. It keeps people honest. 
from the standpoint of trying to impose their own agendas. And when you notice sort of what went wrong politically, I agree entirely because if you go back to the 1960s, so you made reference to late 1950s, 1960s, Pat Brown was governor. <clears throat> you saw basically a kind of a shared bipartisan vision between Republicans and Democrats about what needed to be done. Um, in the 1960s, half of the state's population was under the age of 24, meaning not much tax revenue from half the people living, living, living within the state. And there is, a, there is a fundamental need to make sure that tax dollars were spent efficiently, that they were spent on items that were priorities for people living here. And I went back and I looked at some budgets back in the day, and as much as 35% of those budgets were devoted to capital investment. So back in, you know, back in that day that you're referring to, that's when the big water, uh, water infrastructure investments were done and the transportation investments and schools were built and the master plan for higher education. All that, I mean, it's remarkable. All that stuff was done on one fifth of the budget that we have today. And when you noted, um, you know, kind of when, when did all of this change? Uh, I mean, in my rubric, I kind of have, I've sort of had two dates. Um, one was 1970 when that, when that California Environmental Quality Act was passed, which followed up on the enormous massive oil slick that happened in the Pacific around Santa Barbara. So there was, I think, enormous ill will towards industry around that time. And then the second date, and then um, Bill knows this stuff more than I do because it happened when uh, you know Governor Wilson was around the time of his uh, governorship. Um, there was the bill, and I don't, uh, and Bill, I don't remember the legislative number, but it was the bill about that made Republicans very, very unfavorably viewed because of their views about immigration. And it was a bill that was uh, viewed as very anti-immigrant. Bill, I can't remember the the the, 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 the Sorry, number. You're talking, Prop, you're talking Prop 187. 187, yeah, yeah. And um, if I remember correctly, about 40 percent of the state's voters were registered Republicans in the early 90s. Ten years later, it was down to the mid 20s. Um, so those are the two dates or two tipping points that I see. I'd like to ask both Bill, though, and, and Lee to help us out here on, on details of state politics, because it's not just um, Democrat versus Republican. Once you have a one-party state, you, you fight things out within the party. There's the coastal landed gentry versus the Central Valley, uh, the um, the mob squad of, uh, of actually ethnic um, legislators who want things to actually uh, get get run. There is actually a YIMBY movement. It's all Democrats. There are people now good progressive Democrats were saying, what, the teachers unions are out of control here. Uh, so, and notice in the last, uh, in the propositions, all of the propositions favored by the uh, coastal landed gentry and that passed 100% to one, I'm exaggerating slightly in Palo Alto, failed on a statewide basis. So is there not hope that um, removed from the national Republican versus Democrat partisanship, nonetheless, there are forces that want decent governance in California within the Democratic Party, and that's the political divide. 
Yeah, if you notice, John Newsom has been tacking. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, Gavin Newsom may be facing a recall election later this year, uh, and he's been tacking of late. He is doing two things. Number one, he has mercifully given up his daily press conferences, uh, which were just these painful word salads that just process. Uh, instead, he's gone out and he is touring Vaxa. Uh, one reporter calls it Vaxa Palooza. He's just going around like he's on tour, just going to vaccine uh, locations. Gray Davis did the same, by the way, in 2003, facing a recall. He went to energy facilities, thinking he had to push back against rolling blackouts. That didn't work out too well. Uh, but a couple of thoughts here. Uh, first of all, Neil, your question about what happened to Republicans. Um, I call it an avatar problem in this regard. You go into a Republican office in California, and there should be two photos up on the wall. Uh, if you have a local official, great, a congressman, a mayor, and then a national official. And not since Ronald Reagan, Neil, in the 1980s, has California had a national Republican figure it could connect to. Uh, George H.W. Bush gave up on the state in 1992. Bob Dole came out and uh, tried to campaign in California, was terrible at it. George W. Bush almost lost the election in 2000, Neil, because he came out a week before the election when he should have been in Florida, thinking he could go to win this state. Uh, since then, it's been toxic, even more so under Donald Trump, who could barely crack 32, 33%. So part of the local problem for Republicans, Neil, is a national problem. You don't have a national party you can identify to. The national party is much too red. It's much too sunbelt. It's much too southern fried, if you will. Uh, but John, getting into the into the legislative problem here, uh, yeah, you mentioned the Mod Squad, for example. There are only a handful of, of members in the Mod Squad. It's barely a carpool at that. Um, and when push comes to shove, when you look at money in the legislature, they tend to roll over on things. Why? Because uh, the majority leaders are basically controlled by unions. They're not going to push back against moderate ideas. So there's no break on this system. And I think that's one reason why the recall election this year is fascinating out here. I'd like to get your guys' thoughts on this. Um, it's maybe the first volley of what's coming in the 2022 election if you figure that the California vote's going to be based on vaccination policy, but also a governor stepping over the bounds, in his case, going to the French laundry and being out of touch, the way Ted Cruz went to Cancun, the way Andrew Cuomo's rather arrogantly campaigned in New York. Do you, you guys are disagree or disagree? agree or disagree with that assessment? Well, you know, I'm just learning a lot about California politics right now. So nobody should ever accuse generals of making, you know, uh, decent economic decisions. Because whereas everybody else is leaving the state, I've moved here and convinced all my family, you know, to, to move here uh, as well. I will point out that I did just reach landfall with my paddleboard just a few minutes before taping. So I, I, there are some tremendous benefits, I think, to being part of, of uh, the California scene. But I guess my, my question is, uh, related to Neil's, except, okay, what is the incentive? Okay, what is going to actually force a positive change? You know, and, and maybe to connect it to Bill's uh, idea of the connection between, you know, the, the failure of the Republican Party locally, because it doesn't have really a, a connection to the national Republican Party. Will the Republican Party get back to the politics of addition? And, and reach out, for example, in the Hispanic communities that share their values, that, that are caught in situations where they can't opt out of their bad school districts and, and are in favor uh, of, of uh, school choice, for, for example. So I guess the question is, hey, what is it going to take to turn it around? And, and do you see a path forward in, in that connection for, for both Bill and Lee? Lee, so you want to take a shot at? Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, great questions. If, if we went, you know, to get a sense of just how quickly some of these have the potential to change, uh, potential. You look back just to just the fall and Newsom had a 67% approval rating, despite the fact the state had you know, 10% unemployment. 
you know, 40, 48th, only behind Hawaii and Nevada, both of which rely just enormously on tourism travel. So he went from 67% approval down to today, it's under, under 50%. So I, I and, and this shocks me, uh, not only because of just how quickly this happened, but, but it also gives me some heart that voters are starting to connect the dots. So as Bill noted, you know, we, we've been writing this biweekly column about called California on your mind for about two and a half years. And every week I write a column and, and my blood pressure spikes and then I send it in. I try to forget about it. But every time I write a column, my conclusion is always, you know, the, the, why aren't voters connecting the dots from outcomes to policies to politicians? And why aren't they asking their elected representatives, what are you doing to make our schools better or to make housing more affordable or to make more high quality jobs, uh, bring businesses into my community? Why aren't they doing that? And so I think this recall may be an inkling as to they are starting to do that. And they are starting to look at teachers unions, uh, which had really disguised themselves very conveniently and effectively as not a union, but as the teacher. And most parents, you know, they adore their kids' teachers and teachers unions played off of that and said, hey, we're not union, we're just the people behind the teachers. And so I think they're now seeing that Many teachers want to come back. I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago that quoted some teachers who said, you know, I, uh, kindergarten teachers who said, it breaks my heart to try to do Zoom with six-year-olds. I really want to get back in the classroom. Um, and I'm really uncomfortable talking about this with my union representatives. So I think they're starting to see these kinds of stories. So, um, so HR, at the end of the day, it takes voters to pull the trigger on who they want to be representing them. Um, and the first step in that is for them to understand that there's a reason why, why, um, why our life in California, it's not like East Coast weather where you just throw up your hands and say, ah, what can you do, it's the weather. N no, no, expensive housing and poorly performing schools and 60 year old dams that break and 200,000 people have to be evacuated such as the Oroville Dam. Uh, water pipes that are 90 years old and, and, and that burst and so El Camino Real is flooded. This isn't like the weather. These are all things that can be fixed. So I'm hopeful. It's way too early to say, but I'm hopeful that maybe people are starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel and they're starting to connect. With Lee, I'd, I'd like to tee up some harder issues. I mean, to you and me, economic issues are easy. Uh, <laughs> I think to actually the rest of the panelists, you know, Come on, we know how to do this. California, uh, San Francisco, especially this LA, has an invasion of homeless. Uh, the New York, I read the New Yorker. Uh, I like to read all sides, and they documented that San, the city of San Francisco spends three hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year per homeless person, and that doesn't seem to be helping uh, the situation. Um, there's a there's a, a, a clearly a, a crime you know, filth on the streets problem. Uh, in the Central Valley, especially, but all over, we do have um, a, a lot of unassimilated immigrants, um, which are a social problem. Um, we have pockets, California has this, uh, this great wealth on the coast, but it has, I, I forget the exact numbers, we have some of the largest um, concentrations of poverty also in, in the country. Um, and and the sort of crime civil disorder is is spreading, uh, you know, not just San Francisco, Venice, L.A. Uh, areas. Um, so what 
these are these aren't issues that as an economist I have easy answers to. Um, but certainly I know from having grown up on the south side of Chicago that that crime, civil disorder are not conducive to a healthy society. Um, so you got any uh, both diagnoses or some simple solutions for us or what makes it particularly worse here? Yeah, so so, um, so John, you identified San Francisco, which which in my in my book has really become the poster child of how maybe well-intentioned, but poorly implemented um, or uninformed policies can just lay waste to, you know, what's, what is perhaps the most productive city in the country. And there are now, um, you know, there are more drug addicts in San Francisco than there are high school students. So, I mean, just think about that for a second. That, you know, that just, that just doesn't sound right for, for so many reasons. There are 550 drug uh, addicts um, per city block in San Francisco. Um, and much of the city, as, as you guys know, living up uh, in that area, um, are, just, uh, are just really non-functional. They become open air drug bazaars and the attendant crime that goes along with that. And um, when, you, when you say, you know, what, 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 where is this gonna go? Um, that becomes a decision that the voters and their and their government have to figure out. And I and I harken back to um, I hope it's not this bad, but I harken back to American Steel and car industries that were you know the only game in town in the 1950s and 1960s before foreign competition arrived, and. Um, labor and management continuously clash. Every three years after collective bargaining agreement, there would be a strike. And it became very destructive. And over time, insidiously, GM went from 80% market share down to 25% market share. But now you look at those industries today, and I think both sides understood, yes, we've made, we made horrible mistakes back then in steel and Oz. And I kind of hope that San Francisco voters and the people on the city council can have this, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of a come to Jesus moment and say this, you know, $300,000, $330,000 per homeless per year, and we're not making a dent. Part of it and, is, you know, there's a cultural thing in wealthy California. So I see it where I live in Palo Alto as does HR. Uh, there's now a homeless encampment on the police station in downtown Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, they're, you know, homeless in the parks, and you read the local next door, and people are, oh, these are our neighbors, we can't encourage them to, you know, you're a lot, you're, you're not, <laughs> you can't buy a house in Palo Alto, but apparently you're, you're <clears throat> allowed to set up a tent in public space and leave it there. Oakland, I gather, um, people, the homeless are now uh, camping on people's front porches and plugging in to the outside plugs <clears throat> and the people don't want to get rid of them and the cops. Now there comes a moment where the, you know, people in the neighborhood have to say, look, I'm, I'm sorry for your problems, but it is unacceptable to live in, to, to, to ruin a public space like this. And um, the, the um, <clears throat> Palo Alto, at least they haven't gotten to that point. <laughs> but Lee, Lee's uh, suggested uh, the need for a come to Jesus moment, but how about a go to Detroit moment? Because let's face it, although uh, the big car companies finally realized that they were uh, committing uh, suicide as businesses, that didn't save Detroit from turning into 
at what looked when when I went there for the first time uh, ten years ago like a battle zone. I mean, I remember landing in Detroit, and as I looked down, I thought, well, I must have come to Grozny or somewhere by mistake because this doesn't look like a, an American city. It looks like somewhere where full-scale conventional warfare has happened. And I, I could well imagine San Francisco carrying on down this path of self-destruction because cities do that sometimes. The political economy seems to me to have been completely broken. Uh, and this, I think, is part of what John's talking about, that there ought to be some kind of backlash. You would have thought that at a certain point, property owners would say, maybe this is not such a good idea. Uh, and yet the culture of liberalism, uh, which is of course not liberalism at all, but a kind of warped progressivism, inhibits people from taking the right decisions. Nothing illustrates the, the insanity of the city better than the renaming of schools fiasco at a time when there is a chronic crisis of education, where it is very clear that it is poor kids who are losing out from school closures. What do they do in San Francisco? They rename schools that are named after such unfortunate and politically incorrect uh, uh, figures in history uh, as Abraham Lincoln. And to my especial horror, Robert Louis Stevenson, perhaps one of the greatest writers that Scotland ever produced, certainly one of the greatest writers of children's fiction of all time from any country, and yet cancelled because his poetry in the uh, late 19th century was insufficiently woke. I mean, how even Diane Feinstein got cancelled. <laughs> How do, you, how do you cure that when the people running school boards have, have essentially become completely detached from reality and detached from the interests of the people they're supposed to be most concerned about? That is to say, poorer children. I mean, I, th I think, um, and, and Neil, just to follow up on that, my, um, my, my favorite, actually least favorite renaming within that whole crazy process is uh, the Argonne Elementary School. And so um, I, I looked this up because I thought the Argonne Elementary School was named after the, the scientific organization um, in New Mexico. Uh, but it's not, it's named after, um, I mean, I mean, you, you and HR know, know this stuff much better than I do. It's named after the Argonne yeah. Forest, maybe it's, Ar it's in France, so I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. It was, a, it was the location of a World War I battle. Um, and this, and the school was named after uh, a brave San Franciscan who had distinguished himself in that battle. But apparently, the troops at some point were segregated, according to Black White. Um, and, and, and and I can't I can't believe that the Argonne battle was the only time this ever took place. But that is the reason why the Argonne no, the, school the, is, the, is the, being the, mil <laughs> the military was segregated until Harry Truman uh, integrated it in 1948. So, so uh, you know, ex exactly. It just shows that how ridiculous this is, Lee, you know, and-, and uh, you know, this, I, is, I, this is an opening. Uh, this is the place where, um, as you look mm -hmm. at the polling, black, people, black families really want school choice. And they are starting to feel um, that this, uh, this favoritism for the teachers union is really hurting them. Uh, Asian families in, in uh, San Francisco have just discovered that they got kicked out of uh, the, the high performing high school. Uh, so blatant discrimination against them is starting to hurt. I'm sorry, HR, I interrupted you. No, no, I, 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 was, I, I wanted to go back to homelessness if we can, because you know, I, I really, it seems to me like it's just this intractable problem. I mean, at Lee, what, what would you recommend? I remember our colleague, Michael Bernstam, he had a, an op-ed pre-pandemic ages ago, in, I think in 2019, in which he said the incentives are all wrong. 
and and he recommended uh, you know maybe uh, halfway houses that were incentivized for people to bridge out of homelessness. He he thought that there would be if this, these were for profit that this would be great retirement jobs you know for for counselors and and police officers and social workers and and so I, I, what what is, what is in the in the realm of what you think are feasible ideas to address this homeless homelessness problem? Yeah. Um, and HR, it's um, I, I, that that's a great point. And I think it's even worse than that, because when you look at San Francisco, it suffered almost three times as many deaths from opioid um, overdose than, than COVID. And COVID is supposed to be the public health disaster of our lifetime. And yet, three times as many opioid deaths in San Francisco uh, because of fentanyl, which is an artificial opioid and which, uh, um, which I didn't know until I did some research for a column I wrote, um, apparently just eight grams can be fatal. Um, when firefighters, when, when, when paramedics go to treat an opioid victim, they have to have breathing apparatus on because just the slightest bit can be, can be poisonous. Um, I think Michael's ideas um, are spot on. I think to the extent that these people have families, we, we, I think we need to have them involved. Um, about half of the homeless, maybe as many as 60% do have substance abuse issues. <clears throat> and so, you know, we're, we're, you know, and there's obviously a tension about that within a free society, but as John pointed out, you don't get to, you don't get to appropriate ownership from, from others. Um, so that has to be addressed. And I loved your idea about counselors and expanding the support network. But I'd like to think between getting families involved and building facilities, and, and, and we shouldn't be building these facilities, say, down on the San Francisco waterway at $1,500 a square foot, which is, which is what's going on right now. We get a lot more bang for the buck. <clears throat> and again, going back to the idea that California government used to be remarkably efficient, um, not anymore. But trying to provide real health and mental health support um, and to try to help these people if they want help. Um, and, and if they don't, um, then that's a difficult question with different possible answers we need to address. I mean, but, which is, I mean, this is largely a problem of mental health and substance abuse. Uh, we know that there is the $330,000 is not going in checks to the homeless people. It's going into salaries of people who are supposedly providing services, which is a little bit of the problem of uh, this thing. But, you know, much more support for mental health is obvious. But then there's the question of where. And, uh, you know, you look around and as you pointed out, 1500 bucks a square foot. Why is it that people are camping in the most crowded, the most expensive real estate around? Well, part of it is that's where the service is. Part of it is that's where the drug bazaar is. But that could certainly... Um, we could provide a lot more services to people who need them more efficiently in places where real estate wasn't uh, quite uh, in quite such demand. And it's, you know, the fact is they have been attracted there by the vast amount of uh, homeless services. Provided. It would be remiss of us not to mention the not trivial problem of wildfires, mm. because that seems to me to be a very profound problem that can't now easily be fixed, uh, given that, that there's such a large extent uh, of forest that hasn't been uh, subject to controlled burn for years and years. Uh, and it's hard to imagine uh, under the existing dispensation that you could get 
even a small fraction of that dealt with before the next wildfire season is upon us. We're now approaching late February. It could be uh, as soon as August that we're back to uh, acrid smoke uh, in the air. And I, I looked at this when the fires were at their height at the uh, uh, towards the uh, end of last summer. In fact, we had an episode of Goodfellas with Victor Davis Hanson where we talked about it. And I came away thinking this can't be fixed. It's been left too late. It's been left for too long. And once again, a combination of well-intentioned regulation uh, has stood in the way of the kind of uh, action that might have prevented this problem 20 years ago. But, but what do you do about it now? I have to say that if you are telling me the fire season is going to be a regular feature of Californian life, the blizzards of New England suddenly look terribly attractive to me because I would far rather be shoveling snow than inhaling, uh, than inhaling smog on an annual basis. What's the solution there, or is there none? The, um, yeah, 10 of the state's 12 worst wildfires have occurred, I believe, since um, 2005. And uh, ironically, I did, I did a back of the envelope calculation um, based on some numbers I got on carbon emissions, J just carbon emissions, not particulates that are coming from those fires. Essentially, um, my back of the envelope calculation says that the state, all the states remarkably costly efforts at reducing our carbon footprint, ranging from, you know, subsidizing EVs to mandating solar panels on every home, every new home now built in California have been eaten up just by those out of control fires. Um, so we essentially have nothing, we have nothing to show for that. Um, and I think, Anil, the, the problem you pointed to really goes back to the California Environmental Quality Act, um, in which that is, uh, that is levered in particular ways. Um, and that has really stood in the way of creating fire breaks and thinning fuel sources. And, um, and you know, it's a big, big state with a lot of fuel sources out there. And it's going to take huge public investments to make it done that. Um, but, but you're just, absolutely uh, right. John, hang on a second, because I think it's important for uh, our audience to get, get a few facts on this. So uh, there was a study published in ProPublica last year uh, in which the authors concluded around 20 million acres that's about a fifth of the state's territory. We're in urgent need of fuel treatment, meaning prescribed burns, mechanical thinning, managed wildfire, 20 million acres. So right now, the, the, the average annual uh, area treatage is 13,000 acres. And, and that has declined steadily uh, since uh, the, the 1980s. And that, that strikes me as an absolutely perfect illustration of uh, a problem that cannot now be fixed other than through disaster. Now, I have a little bit of skin in the game because I'm writing Ooh. a book about disasters that's coming out in May, but this is a great example. You, you can't actually sort out 20 million acres without more of what we saw last year. And it seems to me almost inevitable that these very large scale fires are gonna happen, maybe not every year, but every few years because there's no way actually that you could get 20 million acres treated uh, 
at the present rate, even inside 20 years. Neil, if I could, so we could at least start doing the right thing. So right now, the, the amount of permits it takes to get a controlled burn. There was a, a, a case of a town that put in a permit for a controlled burn. It took them 10 years and then the town burned down before the permits came right. in. Uh, so, uh, you know, we could start doing the right, a massive uh, plan for controlled burns and thinning could start now. Uh, rather than firefighting being something that the state does on an emergency basis with volunteers over the summer, uh, we could hire people year round to do it. Um, if uh, we could, in, instead of spending, eight, the, I'm sure we're all agreed the answer is not to build an $80 billion high-speed train from Bakersfield to Fresno. Uh, and because that will lower carbon, that will stop the climate from being hot. Uh, but you could certainly take that money and do what we all know, uh, fire breaks, increased firefighting capacity. Uh, you know, why do we have, why, are, why don't we have more planes? Why don't we have more firefighters? Why don't we have people year round uh, doing the right thing? Why don't we uh, fix the rate? This is a problem. If you start working on this problem, you might have a few more years of fires. Uh, but uh, the conflagrations that we've seen could be, you know, we, we could get a handle on that. Now, I, I'm going to guess a number of 10 years or so, but um, this doesn't have to be, your, your gloom of this has to be a perpetual problem and will never be fixed seems uh, misplaced. If you get to it right now, doing what even the New Yorker articles on this say is the right thing for it to, but to be if, done. But if, John, if, but even if you replace uh, Gavin Newsom, is there anything really going to happen? I mean, it's February and people talk as if this didn't happen. Uh, and I fully expect nothing to happen between now and the next major conflagration, and we'll all act surprised. I, I think the politics is so broken in California that nothing short of a statewide inferno is going to change this. Well, uh, we pretty much I, had that last summer while you were in Montana. <laughs> well, you know, I, you ain't seen nothing yet, John, because it can No, no, I think you're worse. right. And this is actually a counterexample to your book, because <laughs> your book talks about uh, uh, things that happen that nobody expects, you know, that they've gone 20 years and everyone's forgotten it. This happens every single summer. Yeah. But the central theme of the book is the politics of catastrophe, that these things that we call natural disasters aren't natural at all because they're the consequences of political decisions. Here's a question for HR. The military is pretty darn good at thinking about the unexpected. Uh, how is it that our, our state government is unable to think about the expected? <laughs> well, I think there's some parallels here. You know, I was just going to say, you know, th this isn't a black swan. It's a pink flamingo, right? I mean, it's right in front of you. It's hard, hard to miss. But the, the um, you know, there's this old saying that, you know, the military is always prepared to fight the last war. What military history, I think, demonstrates. At least they are is, prepared for that. Sorry. Is that well, I mean, the militaries who have the, the greatest difficulty at the outset of a war are those who studied the last war only superficially and, and therefore came to the wrong conclusion. You know, the, I mean, the, the French in 1940, you know, is, 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 is the, the classic example, but it's an, it's an example that you see over, over and over again. So, I mean, I, of course I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir with Neil fellow historian here, but I think understanding how the recent past produced the present is the best way to make a grounded projection into the future. And then, and then, and then, recognizing the cause as and 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 studying it as Neil has in his forthcoming book of of why we are unprepared uh, is the first step to to uh, improving. But you know, I, I guess I'd ask Lee, you know, how about how do you, do you buy Neil's uh, pessimistic view that that there is not sufficient will, political will, to force a change uh, to to prevent 
fires to to take on teachers unions and 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 move maybe towards school choice or at least reform of our primary and secondary education systems uh, to you know to to remove regulatory barriers to to increased housing uh, to to do sensible uh, to take sensible action against the homelessness problem. I mean, are are we just stuck? Uh, with the, the the decline of the state based on a lack of will, or do you see that changing? Uh, I think there's a number of things we can make progress on. Uh, we may need either different leadership or leadership that changes their focus. Um, in response to Neil's, Neil's really interesting discussion about fires and in, in, in fuel and 25 million acres, Newsom was very vocal about making some changes there. Um, and I thought, Great, two words, executive order. So John mentioned you know, the town burned down <laughs> before they got the permit. Um, executive order. Um, sadly, we see executive orders about things like no fossil fuel powered vehicles for sale in the year 2035. So I had just hoped that he would start that conversation because we all agree this is what 90% of us agree this is what needs to be done. Those areas need to be thinned out. We need to put in fire bricks. Um, so I'm disappointed that he he did not carry through with more emphasis on that. Doesn't, what, doesn't um, you know, I, I, I worry about the state's political leadership, including the idea that, you know, it's been a one-party state for so long. I look within, um, I look for political competition and I see some great young state legislators on the Republican side. I think people who could who could foster consensus, who I think are moderate in ways that would appeal to a large swath of voters who have really good economic instincts. Uh, Kevin Kiley in the assembly, Melissa Melendez in the assembly, uh, Andreas Borges in Fresno in the state Senate. I think these are all people that have great ideas that are charismatic and personable. Um, you know, I, I keep my fingers crossed that they are people like them can start having some effect, um, somewhat ironically, but I'm glad to see this, uh, Newsom becoming a little bit more bipartisan and reaching out to Andreas Borges about including $2 billion for small business support now during the pandemic. Um, so HR, I, I remain hopeful. Some issues like better performing schools, we, we know what to do there. We know what to do. Um, it requires politicians who are willing to take on teachers unions and make that case to voters. Um, wildfires are, are uh, feasibly, physically a tougher road to hoe, um, but a lot of this stuff with better governance can be, can be changed and changed substantially. We just need the right people in elected office to do that. But we're focusing on the governor, I think, too much. I mean, right? Where are the political forces pushing the governor? I hang out in the Central Valley, actually, for, for various hobby reasons, and I know some people who fight these fires. And uh, let me tell you, they're not happy about this one bit. And they're, you know, in, in their local government, they're happy to express their views on exactly uh, all the snafus they see and how the fires are fought and in their lives. So you talked about carbon. The real impact of the wildfires is air quality. Uh, this is way worse than Los Angeles in the 1960s, the worst of the, worst of the smog. And in fact, it's all the disadvantaged communities that we're supposedly worried about are the ones uh, who live in the Central Valley, who breathe the smoke. If you're in a condo and the top, and top of Knob Hill in San Francisco, the wind comes in from the West and on your way to the French Laundry, it, it might be a little bit annoying, but that's about the limit of it. Uh, this is really hurting the, the, 
the the people the the people who the mod squad uh, represent and, I'm, and so you know even a governor is is sits atop a a bunch of people whatever their party and i cannot imagine that that the people who live in the central valley are not just up in arms about uh, about the quality of their air forget about carbon and global warming and stuff like that Oh, absolutely they are. And life in the Central Valley, I'm sure you've heard this from Victor Davis, life in the Central Valley hasn't really returned to what it was like before the financial crisis. Uh, home prices remain below their peaks from before the financial crisis. And I mean, I see, again, not to be partisan, I, I, my intention is not to be partisan, um, but the Democratic Party has a problem now in that, um, who are Democrats? Um, Mark Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, um, is one face of the Democratic Party. And then there are very poor people living in the Central Valley um, who share nothing at all in common with Mark Zuckerberg other than they're also a member of the Democratic Party. And there's a tension there that's going to grow and that I don't see how the Democratic Party really, the face of the Democratic Party now, is going to be able to effectively manage. And I see that as a force for good from the standpoint of competition for better economic ideas and not ideas that just benefit, you know, the elites in that party. That said, California is 40 million people. It's incredibly different in ways that may not always be the easiest <clears throat> to govern. And I think that's why more than ever, fundamentally people in, govern in government have to be willing to be a politician in the old school sense of the word. So I, I think of a politician as somebody who can do a deal and both sides all around think, okay, we got some out of this. And um, in the last 10 years in California, and I think more in other places in the world, politicians have become less deal doers and more of personal idiosyncratic agenda let me let me toss out let me toss out a question to the group. There's a gentleman uh, who lives not too far from Stafford by the name of Tim Draper. Uh, some of you may know him personally. Uh, Mr. Draper uh, has made a killing in Bitcoin. He's done very well in investments uh, throughout his life. It's a very famous venture capital family. Uh, Mr. Draper, back in the year 2000, ran a school choice initiative in California. Uh, he was crushed. He didn't get to 30 percent. Uh, recently, Mr. Draper came up with a new idea, which was to break up California into multiple pieces, create little states out of California. Cochran's nodding his head to the thought of this. I don't know if he agrees with me or thinks I'm nuts. I have, to, I have, to, I have stories you, what, to tell, but go ahead. What do you guys think about the California breakup? Should it be broken up into pieces? Because are we are we making the argument here that in its current form, it's ungovernable? I don't think breaking it up would fix that. In fact, uh, I think it would have very negative consequences uh, for the U.S. as a whole that there are all sorts of uh, initiatives abroad to try to skew the Senate one way or another in favor of the Democratic Party. Three Californias sounds like the shortest cut to uh, one party rule in the country as a whole. So right. count me out of that idea. Thanks. Well, you get two Californias and one Jefferson, which will be very Republican, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, would just, I, would just, I would just say, hey, if, if, if scale is the problem, maybe the levels of government are confused about what their roles are. You know, so I... You know, I, I think if you look at, you know, to use a, a military analogy again, a, a large complex operation, the way you deal with that is you decentralize authority and control to the lowest possible level so that each unit, each organization has the assets they need to deal with their part of this complex problem that you're, you're coping with. You can, you can orchestrate efforts you know, across a wide area with multiple different units and organizations. 
but I think maybe the, you know, the greatest hope I, I, I would imagine for reform is at the local level where local government you know, is, is closer to, to the politicians they elect. And so um, maybe that's the way to deal with it. If, if it is ungovernable, maybe it's because there's too much authority, you know, too many taxes uh, at, the, at the wrong levels. Yeah, I don't want to go as far to say it's ungovernable. Um, I think California in some ways was more difficult to govern when Pat Brown was governor and half the state was under the age of 24, not paying any taxes. And the budget was one fifth of what it is today per capita. Um, but they managed to make good decisions, get things done. And, and you know, I would say 80% of the people living in the state at that time were probably pretty happy with how things were going. And you still look around, you see the, uh, I mean, my, my, my oldest kids went to um, school in Los Angeles and some of the buildings were still the Quonset huts that were put up back in the day from when Jerry Brown was governor and dollars were scarce. So I think it really boils down to a, a, an electorate that really needs to understand and needs to connect the dots between outcomes to policies, and um, and needs to and uh, needs to hold people accountable. Um, you know, well, so uh, Bill, the, the cleavage in California is not really so much inherently geographical, which you solve by carving the state up. We have a coastal elite, the Mark Zuckerbergs, who are insanely rich and able to indulge in all sorts of virtual signaling fantasies about how things ought to be run, like renaming schools. They love that stuff. Their kids go to private schools. What do they care? We have a Central Valley, uh, which is agricultural, um, very Latino, uh, not necessarily different interest from the, I'll call it working class, the average working stiff who actually, you know, does most of the stuff around here and built the houses and and so forth. Really, that strikes me as the divergence. The latter two have practical issues they want. So maybe the answer is once Zuckerberg and company all move off to Austin, Texas, and can start uh, voting in um, their versions of homeless policies, practical politics will return. Uh, you know, ma many, many cities were one party. Chicago has been a one party state since, I don't know, 1920. Uh, now it has all sorts of problems, but um, at, at least, uh, you know, at least there's, it, it, you can be functional when you are within a one party system, but nonetheless, there are parties within the party that represent people that actually want to get something done. But the big cleavage seems to be between the sort of desire to, to legislate a social woke agenda from people, uh, very rich people in the coasts, people whose main interest in keeping the property value of their houses up uh, <laughs> And um, uh, th that seems to be the main thing between them and, and people who actually would like a functioning state and, and the, the remainder can get along. Uh, but, but that, is, that is that? a geographical, that is a geographical cleavage. I'm reminded of Victor's, Victor Davis Hansen's brilliant piece 10, 11 years ago now, in which he wrote about the Central Valley, that, that part of California that no tourist ever goes to. And, and he described it as another country uh, where countless, I'm going to quote because it's such striking prose, countless inland communities have become near apartheid societies where Spanish is the first language, the schools are not at all diverse, and the federal and state governments are either the main employers or at least the chief sources of income. And we've had this conversation, as many conversations about California uh, often are, focusing mainly on the coast. Uh, that's the part of California where we spend time. But I, I, I think it's absolutely crucial to remember that that is not all of California. You see it, John Victor, of course, spends much of his 
time there, but I, but I think the national conversation about California and certainly the global conversation about California ignores that other California almost completely and doesn't recognize that the poverty rate in California is actually one of the highest in the country, if not the highest. I think the Census Bureau estimated it at something like 17% uh, in a recent report. And, and that's the California you don't see on TV. Uh, and I think actually the, that's where the real problems are located. And it's the indifference of the coastal elite to that California that, that I find most most deplorable. Okay, that's a good note for us to close on. Let's do it with one last question. Uh, we can all agree that pandemic vaccinations is the driving story in California at the moment, uh, maybe followed by a recall if that happens. Uh, why don't we close this up by going around the horn and have each of you tell us what the sleeper hidden California story is. Neil, why don't you start off? Well, I think the, the sleeper story is the, the wildfire problem, and it's going to be couched as a, as a problem of glo global climate change because that's what the coastal elite likes to talk about, whereas I think we've identified that it's nothing of the kind. It's actually a, a disastrous failure of public policy. Mm -hmm. Okay, HR? Well, I think the sleeper is going to be as a result of the pandemic and the strains that it's put on families, the various traumas that they've had to endure, especially those you know, who, who are working and then whose children can't be in school because teachers unions object to their children going back to school. And uh, I think that there is going to be a demand uh, for, for change and, and a demand uh, that, that at least local leaders do a better job at looking after the interests of their, of their constituents. So I, I'm, you know, true to form, I guess, uh, I, I'm, I'm the optimist here. I would also like to point out, though, I think I'm the only, the, the only uh, uh, participant in this conversation who has lived in the Mojave Desert of California for two years, uh, at, at scenic Fort Irwin, California, about 40 miles north of Barstow. And then Simon, I enjoyed tremendously, by the way. Okay. <laughs> John, your choice for a sleeper story for California. Well, I don't know if it's a sleeper or not, but but whether San Francisco and to some extent LA go to the go the way of Detroit, I think is important. But I think what Neil, I think Neil encapsulates the political difficulty of California beautifully. We face wildfires, and any common sense tells you you know exactly where this comes from: uh, mismanagement of the forests, inadequate uh, budgets to fight it, and and you know letting the letting the tinder build up. The elites and the in the uh, in the coastal cities says the answer to the wildfires is this is our climate sins we must build a high speed train to lower carbon emissions and that's the only way otherwise we must we must suffer with these fires as penance for our climate sins that's absolutely crazy but that is an epitome of the approach to all of the practical problems of infrastructure governance uh, social problems economic problems going on in the state okay and Lee I'm going to give you the final word your sleeper story. Uh, uh, well, first of all, let me say thanks. Uh, thanks to you all, gentlemen, for letting me join you today. It's been uh, it's been a ton of fun, and I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to share ideas with you. Um, in terms of a sleeper story, I'm going to follow up on something that Neil said regarding poverty, um, which was about 17% of Californians uh, live under the poverty line, um, which which is a shame. We all should be worried about. But to top that off. Um, Mike Boskin told me uh, about a year or two ago, 38% are within 10% of the poverty line. And you can bear that out within the context of how many people are on, are on uh, Medicaid. Um, it's 14 million within the state. So that's the government provided health insurance for people who are very, very low income. Um, and so I think the sleeper story is that what we're seeing now um, from the November elections, and John mentioned, you know, how they went, they didn't go the way of 
the coastal elites. And um, Gavin Newsom's drop in approval from 67% to 46% in a matter of a few months. I think people within the Democratic Party were going to begin to understand that their interests for 90% of them are not being served by the party leadership. And I think there'll be growing pressure for the Democratic Party to change. And I think that'll be a good thing. Okay, gentlemen, we're going to leave it at that. Uh, enjoyed the conversation. Uh, we could spend all day talking about California, couldn't we? And uh, maybe next time we'll have another conversation, have a few more solutions, hopefully some better news. Uh, you can check out, but you can never leave. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Well done. All right, that's it for Goodfellows this week. We'll be back next week with a new episode, new conversation for you. Uh, on behalf of the Goodfellows, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, John Cochran, our guest this week, Leo Hanian, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, for that fact. By all means, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll do our best here at the Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll see you next week. Thank you.